The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. American Symphony is a portrait of two artists, John Batiste and Suleika Jouad, at a pivotal crossroads in their lives. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson. And I'm Mike Merrill. Welcome to Top Docs. Today we're talking to Matthew Heineman, the director of American Symphony. American Symphony had its world premiere at the 2023 Telluride Film Festival and has since screened at numerous festivals throughout the U.S., where it's picked up several audience and juried awards, including at Philadelphia, Montclair, Middleburg, and Woodstock. Matthew Heineman was nominated for an Oscar for his 2015 documentary, Cartel Land, which won the Primetime Emmy for Exceptional Merit in Documentary Filmmaking. This is Matthew's third trip to Top Docs. Previously, he appeared to discuss The First Wave and Retrograde, both of which were shortlisted for the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. Well, he, this is his third visit to Top Docs. This is the first time I've had a chance to speak with him on the mic, and it was a pleasure to do so. What was really interesting to me is, as you just said, his work has been in working with drug cartels and in war zones and in hospitals in the first wave of COVID. But what he said is actually, in some ways, access was harder here than in those cases. He said, sure, you know, in some ways, basically what he said, sure, it's not easy to embed with special forces as Afghanistan falls, but that's nothing compared to trying to get a steady cam onto the stage at Carnegie Hall. So it's very interesting to hear how, in some ways, working in lawless spaces is easier for him than working in these highly controlled spaces of cultural distinction, of celebrity. These pose their own challenges. He's running around with a camera in Afghanistan outside Kabul, but when it comes to getting into the dressing room with, with John Batiste, there are so many control. The manager can stand in your way. The, the director of the show can stand in your way. Yeah, it was definitely a surprise to me to hear how difficult access was. I figured once he got the go-ahead from John Batiste and Suleika, his life partner at the time, who then becomes his wife in the film, that it would just be carte blanche to enter all these exclusive spaces and get whatever access he wanted, but that certainly was not the case. And yet the end result is a very intimate, personal film that you would never know was so hard to come together. Yeah, and the other thing, you're gonna see a whole nother side to John Batiste, or many sides to John Batiste, no surprise actually. As I called in the episode, the avatar of joy that we see on the Colbert show or saw on the Colbert show is not the full person, which really shouldn't be surprising in retrospect. But this really does open the door to seeing somebody talking about access to seeing somebody who has his own demons, who struggles daily as an artist, struggles daily as a person, who struggles daily as a black man in a world which wants to define him. And we get to see all that at play in this film. 
We do. And I think Matthew and his team, especially his editors, did a really amazing job at showing all the different sides of these two artists, especially John Batiste, and really within the film, balancing all the elements that John Batiste himself is struggling to balance. So light and dark, open spaces, public spaces, and personal private spaces. These things are all so incredibly well balanced, but again, as you'll hear in our interview, not always easy to come by. The only other point I have to make is that American Symphony is currently streaming on Netflix. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and do tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on X or Twitter, if you're still calling it that, also at TopDocsPod. And now, our conversation with Matthew Heineman, director of American Symphony. Matthew Heineman, welcome back for a third time, I might add, to Top Doc. Thanks for having me. How did you first connect with Jean Baptiste and Suleika Jawad? And how did this project come together? I made a documentary called The First Wave. And I asked John through a friend, Nick Bertel, to do this co write the score for that film, which he ended up doing. And soon after the film came out, we were having dinner one night. We'd actually never really sat down face to face and just sort of, yeah, just chat and catch up. And he'd tell me about the next year of his life and this residency that he had at Carnegie Hall, crescendoing with his performance uh, of American Symphony, the, the symphony that he was writing. So at first, the idea was yeah, like, let's try to capture this road to Carnegie, the creation of this symphony, drawing upon influences all across the country. The idea was to drive around the country and meet with folks and gain influences from different regions and different people. But then life intervened and John got nominated for 11 Grammys. So like he got re-diagnosed with cancer. So before we'd even started rolling, the lens of the film had already shifted. Like most films I've ever done, it continued to shift and it continued to evolve and ended up with something completely different than I ever could have imagined. This film is clearly a multi-directional collaboration between the three of you, you, your crew, and Suleika and John. Also, yeah, I would include the musicians in that as well. One thing that's really remarkable about the film, as you say, life intervened. And I think what happens is this collaboration it seems to evolve into a very close relationship. What we see on cameras, you know, you're in some very intimate spaces with them. You're in their bedroom. You're there in the hospital room. You're at their very small wedding. Clearly, you became close to them, I would think. So just curious how that all came together. For me, trust is everything. Trust is a bedrock of what I do. Gaining trust, building trust, maintaining trust with my participants in my film to allow me to get the intimacy that I seek, the intimacy that hopefully reveals different fabrics of the human condition and reveals unforeseen moments and moments of revelation and moments of humor and moments of fear and moments of, yeah, a character changing. And so with that trust, it, it's not, never something that I take for granted. It's something that you're continually sort of renewing your vows metaphorically. Suleika never wanted to be part of the film. When we started filming, she did not want to be the sick antidote to John's success. She didn't want to be the sick wife. And so when we first started, 
I had always envisioned and dreamed of this sort of love story, this these two artists together navigating this very, very difficult moment in their lives. But they didn't really imagine that. And she just really didn't want to play that role. And so it took a lot of conversations. It took a lot of dialogue, it took a lot of just talking through my intentions and showing her my other work and some of what she was familiar with and some of what she wasn't. And then just being really delicate with how I handled that relationship and that access. And that certainly evolves a lot over time. But even the, the wedding that you referenced, you know, she didn't really sign a release until the very end, knowing that she might not want to be included in the film. So the whole film was sort of a, an exercise of a, I guess, a leap of faith on all of our parts. Yeah, it's funny because there's that one moment where her mother seems to express surprise that they actually got married. I'm like, well, Matthew was there. Uh, that's a joke. She she knows that they got married. Uh, okay. That joke sometimes lands and sometimes doesn't. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she was just, she was messing around. She has a dry sense of humor. I, I can appreciate that. Very, very dry. What were some of the challenges of portraying this love story and this intimate relationship, which is clearly, it's a beautiful relationship that they have. It's clearly a strong one and it's being tested through the course of these events. Having spent most of my career in conflict zones and war zones and various supremely complicated places with varying levels of danger, this was just a totally different challenge. John is one of the busiest human beings I've ever met. I mean, we we're filming every single day, seven days a week for seven to eight months, often from sunup to sundown, often 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a day. And so it was a massive, massive effort on all of our parts to commit to this level of access and to this level of filmmaking, this consistency of filmmaking. What that meant from a producing point of view was just every day there was constantly like, oh, wow, you're doing that and that and that. And how do we get in there? And how do we open that door? And oh, that door is closing. How do we open it? I mean, just I don't think I've ever had a film where more doors were shut in front of me that I had to figure out how to open both literally and metaphorically. And then on top of that, you know, as Suleika began her bone marrow transplant, it was a very tricky thing to, to walk because John and I were out and the rest of my crew were out filming and shooting and with crowds and people. And then I had to figure out how to get into the hospital and do it safely because at that point she didn't have an immune system. So a cold could have killed her, especially having made the first wave and having spent a lot of time filming COVID situations. I was extraordinarily sensitive of, of trying to figure out how to do that safely for Suleika. So, you know, there's just a myriad of complexities and obviously the film crescendos at Carnegie Hall trying to get, there's a reason you don't see a lot of films in Carnegie Hall. It's a very, very difficult place to get into. It's a very, very difficult place to film, let alone with 13 cameras. And also, you know, they never let a camera like on stage in the way that I was, I wanted to have, I wanted to have a steady cam right next to John, the entire concert. And so it just felt to me for a film that was so intimate to then shoot the symphony more traditionally from far away would do a disservice to the whole film. So I really wanted to be up close and personal and right next to his hands and his face and his body and hear him breathing. And there's, I think a, 
I don't know, well over a hundred mics throughout Carnegie Hall, but often we were just using the shotgun mic on the Steadicam because it had this really gritty, intimate, you could hear the, the bench creak and his jacket rustle in a way that all the other mics weren't getting. You know, we're going to talk a lot about John and his music, but I want to talk about Selika for a second. She's very well known as an accomplished writer. She's a New York Times columnist, a best-selling book author. We hear about this in passing a little bit, but, it, but we don't see like pounding on a keyboard ahead of a deadline. Instead, you really focus on her visual output, these kind of intriguing paintings she makes, often of elephants in the wake of her physical trials. Can you talk about that choice to focus on the, the, the visual aspect of her work? That choice was based in the reality of, of what I saw. If during this period, the seven or eight months, she's sitting there typing away at a computer writing a book, then that's what I would have documented more. But she was, as she says in the film, some of the medications caused her, her vision to get blurry. And so the idea of continuing to write on a computer, on a laptop, wasn't possible. And so she, she was turned to painting, something she'd never really done before. And I think that that's very emblematic of both who they are as artists and what this film is about, is she was presented with a, a hurdle and she had to figure out what to do with it. And out of that hurdle came a new art form. And I think art as a survival mechanism is obviously like one of the more salient themes in the film and something that they religiously believe in. They've used both of them, used art as a way to get through difficult moments. And obviously you see that in almost every frame of this film. John talks about creating social music, probably one of the most visually striking examples of that is from his early days with his band Stay Human, where they're playing in the streets of New York, they're playing on the subway. It's clearly in these social environments. Can you describe, though, what he means by social music? And would you say he incorporated that approach into the making of his American Symphony? Yeah, I mean, I think social music is, John doesn't see any separation between life and music or life and art. They go hand in hand. What is happening in the world is what is happening in his hands and his mind as he writes a piece or plays or he jams or he's improvising. He's trying to channel humanity in, in what he does. Stay Human, that's the name of his band. Certainly, he's trying to take, with the American Symphony, trying to take all the various themes that we're experiencing at this moment in time and translate it into a symphonic work. It's something he'd been thinking about for years. He'd been prepping for years. It's, it's a, obviously a bold task to try to musically, sonically, symphonically write your version of what America is feeling at this given time. But that's what he set out to do. He has some amazing scenes where he's not only working with another compositor, it seems, but he actually is working directly with the symphony. He's working with like the trombonist and they're actually collaborating in the moment, which I don't think of as, as a standard practice in the writing of symphonies. Yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, the scene that precedes the wedding where, where he develops a new theme in front of the camera in, in real time. And I think I'm, I'm perhaps contradicting myself, but I, I never, on one hand, I never wanted to make a music film. I don't view this as a music film. I view this as a film about two human beings navigating this period of their lives. However, obviously one of the themes is, is the road to Carnegie in, in, this, in, in this creation of the symphony, which also reflects the symphony of life that they were walking through. If I was going to try to do the musical side of this, I didn't want it to be like him intellectually talking about what he's doing. I wanted to feel it. I wanted to be there in real time. I wanted to feel moments of discovery or fear 
And so, yeah, there's countless times, including in the moment that he's referenced, where, where we're literally seeing him, the neurons in his brain firing as he comes up with a new theme. And that's a really hard thing to capture. I've tried, I've tried previously in other films and we shot 1500 hours of footage and you can't, it's like, I don't know, it, it, moments of greatness. You can't just, you know, block into a call sheet and hope it happens between four and six. You have to really spend the time of those 1500 hours. You probably have, I don't know, three to 400 hours of John jamming, writing, playing, rehearsing. So yeah, it's a fishing expedition to find those moments of discovery. You know, you say you weren't looking to do a music documentary, and this clearly isn't just a music documentary, although music's deeply embedded in it. But I wanted to build a little bit about how musical construction itself might have influenced the way you built the film. And there's this really interesting quote you have very early on from John, you know, where he says something like, we like music not just because it sounds good, but it feels inevitable. It's like something that's unfolding whether we accept it or not. And I kind of wondered how you thought about that in terms of a great film. Does it have a sense of inevitability as well? I love that question. I think, I think a great film feels inevitable when you watch it. But I think the, the, the process of creating it feels terrifying. I think it's that fear that drives you to eventually hopefully create something that feels inevitable, at least in, in my case. I, I don't know if this is a good film or a bad film, but hopefully some of the choices that you see in the film feel inevitable. But there's no part of it in the creation of it, shooting of it, editing of it that felt logical. I mean, we could have made a thousand different films with this footage. A thousand different filmmakers would have made a thousand different films. Up until we got into Telluride, where the film premiered, I was kept oscillating. Is this a series? Is this a feature doc? Is this a series? Is this a feature doc? There's literally not because I'm a good filmmaker, but there was our first rough cut was a watchable five hours. It wasn't like normally when I have a rough cut, I'm or first assembly, I'm I'm like crying and want to run away and climb a mountain or something and quit filmmaking. This was like a watchable five hours. And so it took a lot of time to sort of sculpt the clay of the statue to make it feel inevitable. One of the hardest things was balancing the personal arc of John with the arc of the two of them as a couple with Suleika's arc individually as well. They both had their arcs. That was a constant balancing act in the edit room until the final minutes of when we were cutting. I changed the ending the night before we locked at like two in the morning. It's interesting to hear that there was this long cut and the question of what form it would take, a series or a feature, was something under consideration because I think the final product here is incredibly well edited. So hats off to you and your co-editors for that. And I think this classical structure in which the key elements are in perfect balance is achieved. But I'm also wondering if your immersion in the world of John Baptiste and his musical process may have rubbed off on you at all. Did you feel that as you were making the film and editing it specifically, you were under his influence at all in terms of, you know, incorporating some sort of musicality, as it were, into your process? One thing that I just want to reflect on what we just said, and then, then I'll answer the question if that's okay, is part of that dance of not knowing about the series or the feature was we made this film independently. We went to every single distributor out there and no one wanted it. And so that's part of was all 
part of the massive question mark that was in front of us is not only did we start this film paying for it on credit cards and, and trying to figure out how to get it made, but no one wanted it. And so it was this constant like dance of like, <laughs> how do we actually finish this thing and get it done? I probably said this on this podcast previously, and it's, it's so fun to be able to talk to you guys and, and actually have the time to dig in properly to talk about stuff. When I was 21 years old, I heard Al Maisel speak, and he said, if you end up with the story you started with, then you weren't listening along the way. And it's good advice for life. It's good advice for filmmaking. Don't be dogmatic. Be open to the story changing. And it's something that I've held incredibly close to my heart at every step along the way in my career in a macro sense in terms of the films that I choose to make, but then within each film, within each shoot day, within each shot, you know, look beyond the frame. And that sort of improvisational ethos, is, it's truly something that I believe in religiously. I'm not a religious person, but I religiously believe in this. I think this film in feeling John's, who is the master improviser, the best improviser I've ever witnessed in my life, constantly reinvent himself and change and adapt to what's in front of him. It just was a really fun alchemy between the two of us and Sulaika as well, the three of us really. And to dance with these two master improvisers was at times terrifying and presented a lot of, again, like producing and logistical hurdles, but it just was, it was so you know, invigorating. And I think if anything, I just wanted to at the very least, both in the rhythm of the editing and the, in the way we shot the film, just match, for lack of a better word, the improvisational jazz ethos with John lives his life. That was something that was very conscious on our part. The other thing I would say where there's a crossover is the film is a spiritual journey. We see that John is a religious person. For example, you know, in one scene, he literally goes to bed with his bedtime reading, and it's a dog-eared copy of the Holy Bible. And he references God, you know, in his Grammy acceptance speech. So it's clearly an important part of his life and who he is. But it's not really discussed in the film, which is interesting. From what you observed, how important would you say religion is in the life and musical inspiration of John Baptiste? And is this something you discussed with him? It's certainly something we discussed with him. And, and I felt like John's spirituality is so vivid to me that it doesn't need words to put it in a box. Because it, I think his spirituality is unlike anyone that I've ever known or ever met. It would have been very easy to like, and I did it, of course I asked him those questions, but it would have been very easy editorially to include, you know, a reductionistic piece of voiceover of what does your spirituality mean to you? Or what does religion mean to you? Or what drives you? I mean, those sort of obvious and classic questions that we ask as documentary filmmakers. I didn't want to do that. I mean, I, I did it, but I didn't want to include it in the edit because it felt like, I mean, you just described exactly what I wanted you to feel without words. And I love making films this way. The, the dog-eared Bible ending on that, that sequence with that shot says so much. You don't need to say anything. One of the most beautiful and spiritual moments for me in the film is the moment where he dedicates a song to Suleika after a sequence with which she's on the road. I think we just timed out that shot. It's something like one minute and 27 seconds. That scene wasn't working for a very long time. I was in the edit room and I was just like, I remembered it feeling really special. I couldn't remember exactly why you know, we shot so much stuff. And I was like, let's, let's pull the handles out of this clip. And we pulled it out and it was this minute and 27 second shot. In most instances, holding on a minute that long a shot in silence is a crazy, crazy idea. 
I'm not good at math, but for a movie that's one one hour and 43 minutes, that's a sensible chunk of time. But he writes a novella for us in that time. The way he puts his left hand on the keyboard and then, and then his right hand on the keyboard, the way he breathes in this body posture and the way he's seeking something and the way he's processing Suleika's illness and he's channeling whatever he's channeling from above us. It's all there without any words. And it's, to me, just... It's beautiful seeing somebody like that truly like, again, I'm not a religious person, but I believed in that moment, whatever he was believing in. I was channeling whatever he was channeling or trying to channel whatever he's channeling. I feel like so it's so easy to try to be reductionistic about spirituality. And I feel like these nonverbal moments speak louder than any words could. One of the real revelations of this film is we see a completely different side. In fact, many different sides of John Baptiste. And I think... It is super easy for those of us who know him through Colbert Show to think of him as this avatar of joy. He's just like the happiest person in the world. He's incredibly fluid in all sorts of ways. Although I would note, he was always really good at creating this kind of perturbed face for humorous effect on that show. But here we see a much broader range of emotional valence, of course. And what it turns out is this is something he actually really thinks about and, and really processes, which is the ways in which culture tries to basically confine Black intellectuals, Black entertainers. John has been mischaracterized for so much of his career. And part of why we didn't get financing and get, you know, studios on board in the making of was John wasn't famous enough. We're living in a time when, sadly, these decisions have become algorithmic, literally. Like, how many Instagram followers does he have? How many Twitter followers does he have? How many Spotify followers does he have? And they are literally crunching numbers to figure out what that reach could be because apparently the actual film doesn't matter. It just matters how many followers these people have. Again, this isn't a music doc to me. This isn't a celebrity doc. This is a doc about a human being. And I've tried in every frame of what we shot and every frame of what we cut to, to make it feel like we were with a human being, not a celebrity. And in that vein, yeah, John, for so much of his career, including in the present moment, has been misunderstood, has been mischaracterized. The anecdote where he, you know, where he talks about being at Juilliard and the president seeing, thinking he's crazy and sending him to see a therapist. But it's like the scene in Goodwill Hunting. How, how does that happen? And now there's a big poster of him playing the melodica, which is the, the instrument that they thought he was crazy for playing. But I think the part of John that most people do know, if they do know him, is the sort of bubbly, ebullient, laughing band leader of the Colbert Show. But to be that person takes a lot of work for John. You know, he's battled anxiety, he's battled depression. His spirituality has been part of him for his entire life, but it's also a way for him to navigate what's not necessarily natural to him. It's not necessarily natural for him to be a public figure. It's not natural for him to be on camera or in front of the camera all the time. That first scene that we started filming when, when he's walking across the river wasn't some like, you know, let's get our main character to walk across a log as a metaphor to whatever. That's what he does every New Year's Eve, which is when we started filming. We started filming New Year's Eve 2021. He goes to New Jersey, his house in New Jersey, to pray, to relax, to be by himself, to fill his cup metaphorically, to take on the year ahead. I really wanted to show the side that you described in the question isn't naturally necessarily who he is. Another thing we learn about John is that he has struggled with some mental health issues, like many, many, many people. 
In his case, he talks about anxiety and panic attacks. And we see him on the phone with his therapist. Again, these are very intimate moments. From your point of view, what were the challenges of presenting this particular private side of John Baptiste? I don't know. I guess we're all drawn to different sides of the people that we film for different reasons. On one level, in terms of the Suleika storyline, my dad battled cancer for most of my life. He was treated at Sloan Kettering. His life was saved by Sloan Kettering. That felt very personal to me. In my filmmaking journey, I've, you know, myself battled PTSD and, and I have nightmares often from the work that I've done. And so mental health and destigmatizing mental health is something that's very important to me as it is for John. And so I think it was just a natural thing to explore. I was seeing it, I was witnessing it. And that's part of Mike's question is, yeah, I just wanted to sh just to peel away the onions of what you thought you understood about who this guy was. And the, the mental health exploration was part of that. There's one amazing sequence that happens after the Grammys. We see John listening to some, it sounds like he might be listening to some critique of him at the Grammys. And then he goes to get his shoes shined. And this turns into this whole thing, really surprising thing. The guy who's shining shoes says, oh, I can't do it. Then he finds that John is famous and suddenly he can do it. Can you talk about what, what you were experiencing as you're watching that? I mean, that that it's hard for me to describe that scene just because it, I don't know, it just, it's why I love making documentaries. Like you can't, if you're making the scripted feature version of this and you wrote that scene, it would feel preposterous or it'd feel ridiculous. But the way he approaches John and asks him what he does for a living and then John is sort of shy about it and doesn't is embarrassed to tell him. And then he asks who this guy filming is and why is someone filming him? And then John's looking at the paper and it, it, just the whole the way it unfolds. I just feel like there's so many layers of what's happening there. The way he denies them from his shoe shining experience. And then once he finds out he won five Grammys, he's ha more than happy to shine his shoes. It's just why I love making docs. Like there's so many layers to that scene. Then these two other young women show up and they stand in front of him and take a picture with him as he's getting his shoes shined. It seemed like a tableau that couldn't possibly have happened. It seemed like a structured tableau from beginning to end, but it was just what happened in the moment. It's amazing. Yeah. Again, that, that's why I love making docs. You just can't predict that stuff. And I think I, I knew the night before, after he'd won five Grammys, that I really felt like something special was going to happen in the airport. I had this feeling and I don't think I've ever been so upset because for whatever reason, I was booked on a different flight from him. And so I was so upset because I was like, I'm going to miss this opportunity to, to film. We'd film so often together in airports and I knew how people reacted to him. He could often go unnoticed in the airport, but I just, I just had this inkling that this would be that like Beatles moment of him walking through the airport. And so I, we like somehow got me on this flight with him and that scene happened. But yeah, no, it was definitely a different side of him. And, you know, that's another sub-theme of this movie is John dealing with fame and the balancing of that. And obviously structurally in the film, that's a big part of the arc of the film is his sort of rising fame and his fear of fame. And in the first act, talking about his fear of cracking, both as a musician, as a black man. And so that was certainly something that he talked about all the time. Well, when the, the fiction rights get sold to this doc, make sure that scene stays in. Sounds good. I, I wanted to ask you a couple of filmmaking questions. I think the film is very immersive. And one of the reasons is you don't use lower thirds to identify people. There are no interviews with people. 
talking about John Baptiste. I feel like if I like look back at my work, every film I've tried to lower third or ID less and less. For me, I, I just so believe that context is a slippery slope. And the more context you give an audience, the more that they want. And that it takes away from the visceral experience of a present tense verite film. That's why I also don't include interviews and why I don't include talking heads. I want you to feel like you are in a real time journey with the people that I'm filming with. I really tried on first wave to not use IDs. I failed. I really tried on retrograde to not use IDs. There were less in that than there were in the first wave. And so this was the first film that I successfully didn't have any IDs. That was a very purposeful decision, obviously. And yeah, you know, I get criticized all the time for not having context, for not having interviews. And, you know, we don't know, know where John came from. We, why didn't you explore his New Orleans roots? Like, why didn't you? This is a snapshot in time. And there's enough of an arc to make a 10-part series if I wanted to. So I don't feel the need or the necessity to play by the rules of what a biopic, quote unquote, should be. I don't know why we need to know where he was born and how many brothers and sisters he has. Like, how does that affect that present tense moment? And so that, that was a very purposeful thing. The film culminates in the debut of American Symphony at Carnegie Hall. It's an amazing symphony, by the way, and I hope it's performed again because I'd love to see it. And, and there are things that happen in that scene that, again, could not have been predicted. Spoiler alert, there's a power outage. Can you talk a bit about what that night was like for you, John, Suleika, and everyone? I mean, per some of the themes that we discussed, that night was supposed to happen on May 7th. And on May 6th, we are at the rehearsal space that John was practicing at and in the car with him as he was about to walk in, he wasn't feeling that well. And he slowly sort of tilted up a COVID test that said positive. He got COVID and the symphony was canceled and he went to the hospital and there's a whole COVID storyline that we didn't, that we shot that it didn't end up making it. And I got COVID for the first time. I never got it during the first wave, but I got it during this. And so we didn't know that the symphony would ever happen. It's not like, you know, you're playing in your friend's backyard. I mean, booking a night at Carnegie Hall is tough. It eventually got rescheduled. And I wasn't sure whether I wanted to shoot it. Like it was like, we had such a interesting film without it. Then we sort of collected, just thought about it. And we had built so much towards that point and ended up, yeah, mobilizing to shoot it again months later in September. As I said earlier, I just, I didn't want to just shoot this as a traditional symphony or as a traditional concert. I wanted to feel John's presence and getting a steady cam on the stage with him was a battle. Like they'd never let, allowed that to happen. Um, he had a new manager that literally started like the week before that minutes before we walked out on stage was telling me no. And I said, yes, yes, this is happening. Um, I was like, I'm not going to film like without that camera there. Like it's just, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. It was a lot of negotiating to be able to film it the way I wanted to film it. The power outage, again, this type of thing that you cannot write or predict. I think some people have written in reviews that, you know, was it part, was it performance art? Was it, was John playing to improvise? It's like, it certainly wasn't performance art. It certainly happened. And it was a very, it was a really confusing thing because it wasn't like the lights went out and there's like a spark flying and there's like, and there goes the power. It was, the lights were still on. And the only people that knew that this happened were the musicians on stage. All the mics went, all the recording devices went dark. All the electronics weren't working. And so I think a lot of people backstage were freaking out. 
I was like, this is great for the, for the film. And John met the moment as he meets a lot of these moments, which is with an improvisational attitude. And that's when he sat down and just looked around, realized he needed to fill the time and, and played. It's one of my favorite moments in, in, in the film. The only reason that scene exists in the film is because of that steady cam. There were no recording devices on stage that were actually working because of the power outage. And so if it wasn't for the shock and mic on the steady cam, we wouldn't have that scene or the sound that exists. It all ended up working out and how it's supposed to work out. There are many amazing moments. We touched on a few here in this interview, but I think ultimately film that you've made really reflects John's philosophies of life. For me, I can say he is just a thoroughly Ensuleka, but John in particular, because I've followed him a bit more, he's just a beautiful human being. That's all that I can say. And I think you've made a beautiful film about him and Suleika and about life itself. So thanks so much for being here, Matthew, and congratulations on the film. It is an American symphony all on its own. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Top Docs is a production of Willie Media. This episode was produced by Ken Jacobson and Mike Merrill and edited by Mike. Thank you.